Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Historical. Radio for episode number 1460, entitled Mon Dieu, n'est-ce pas? Which in the Zero-G Puniversal Translator comes out to Mondays, is it not so? (laughs) (laughs) Our podcast title is The Labours of Hercules Poto. I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. Wow, there's just so much out there at the moment. And this one actually came upon us unawares. It crept up. It really did come out of the shadows because I was still like kind of reeling from death on the Nile coming out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden there was this, not only has it been made, it's out ready to be watched. You were in denial for a while. I was very much so. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we, we were delayed on public transport on the Orient Express. Now that would be... Due to a murder. <laughs> yes, a frightful murder. Well, this is the new film, hey? A Haunting in Venice, which is not the title of the original story that it's based on. No, not at all. So there's been a few liberties taken, and I think we're trying to move this kind of franchise, which I think we can call it now, into a bit of a new era and explore some new ideas. And it's I think Brenner's pretty attached to this Poirot series that he's been doing. And I think the studio is backing it too, from what I can tell. They've hinted at more movies beyond this one. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's doing definitely well enough to pay its way. So, And there's heaps of, you know, content there, obviously, because Agatha Christie, prolific writer. And if it's going to be similar to A Haunting in Venice, as we'll examine today, um, you know, they've you can take the original story and add twists to it, add some extra flavour, expand it, change the setting. And so possibilities are endless, I think. And Brandon Sir Kenneth is coming off the back of his 2021 film Belfast, mm. which is sort of a, a coming-of-age biopic almost yes. in lots of ways. So, you know, he's, he's got some good credit moment and he has plucked a couple of uh people from the cast of belfast as well and popped them yes. in this movie as we'll see did you see his uh, all is true the one where he plays shakespeare <laughs> no but uh, look i'm not surprised that that's something that exists in the world <laughs> it's a great film actually i okay. really enjoyed it he's he's got quite an interesting back catalog runner he's tackled yeah. some movies that i didn't really realize were his um and in his gondola in in our gondola in this one uh, it's it's kind of a horror supernatural in some respects, which of course harks mm. back to his uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I love to pieces and then stitch back together. It's very energetic, one of the most yeah. energetic Frankenstein adaptations I've seen, and, and it spoke to me as a creator. <laughs> Should we have a little bit of music yeah. to get us into the mystery mood? Yeah, let's let's go to the well, probably the most definitive. Just as Jeremy Brett is a definitive Sherlock Holmes, so is uh, David Suquette, who is Hercule Poirot in the long, long-running mm. series. And I think they actually managed to adapt pretty much all of the novels and the short stories in the course of that production. Dang. Melbourne's own Triple R. That, of course, was the theme from Hercule Poirot, the television series, a long-running television series. 
which is now finished because they've run out of material. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an artist called The Backing Tracks. Mm. And the album is Play Along for alto saxophone, which sounds very dignified. And then it's got TV hits. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we did play that, of course, because we are digging into the latest in the Poirot series that Brenner has been spearheading over the past five handful of years or so. And this one is called A Haunting in Venice. And, of course, as we mentioned before the track, if you Google that and Agatha Christie, you will not see it come up because the source material that it was based on is a book called Halloween Party. Mm. So this one, again, is directed by Kenneth Branagh, who reprises his role as the infamous Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. Uh, Branagh has well-regarded actor and filmmaker. Some of the films he's directed include Thor, of course, from the Marvel Universe, MCU. Loved it, loved it. Very, very good film and really um, the beginning of a lot of great things to come, I think, with Chris Hemsworth's character, portrayal of Thor. Uh, he also did the live, the Disney live-action adaptation Cinderella from oh, a while yes. back, which I had not realised whatsoever. Um, he's dabbled in Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit, directed that as well, and, of course, he's done a lot of Shakespeare. Mm. And all of them actually have been beautifully done, mm, mm. You know, energetic, lively, fun in a lot of cases yeah, and, yeah. and definitive too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of the core stuff that you should be looking at if you're looking at Shakespeare adaptations. Now, this latest entry in the Poirot uh, series is written by Michael Green, who's also written the previous two films. He wrote okay. Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. So he's a collaborator in this. He's in it for the long run. He's also written uh, Logan, exceptional film, Alien Covenant, Terrible film. <laughs> Can't all be winners. And Blade Runner 2049 as well. Which I did enjoy. Agree. To a large extent. Agree. And I do think it's a pretty tall order to be coming in, writing adaptations of Christie. And for the most part, I think he does a pretty good job of staying faithful. Until this one, which their desire was really not to stay too faithful, but we'll get to that. Mm. Uh, something in Green's kind of filmography that caught my attention was he's writing the new Bioshock adaptation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm keen that that's still happening. Let's see if it actually does. But, I mean, from what I've seen of his work, I really trust him with that source material. So I think that could be pretty cool. Hmm. Um, so we'll hear some pieces from the score later, but I did want to call out that usually um, Patrick Doyle works on these films as composer, but this is the first one that we see Hilda Kuanadotia. Uh, as composer. Now, she's an Icelandic musician and she's also composed before for Tar, which is the recent film with Kate uh-huh. Blanchett, and Joker, the Todd Field uh, adaptation with Joaquin Phoenix. Hmm. So she's also going to be composing for the sequel to that as well. Oh. Yeah. I wonder why the change. The change to... The, a different composer because... Oh, I, I mean, maybe Doyle just wasn't available. Yeah. Who's to say? Who's to say? I mean, I also think... The score for this required, as we'll talk, it's very gothic horror. Yeah. And she really brings some different notes, whereas some of the previous scores were a little bit more your classic mystery style. So, I don't know, maybe the change was a good thing. Uh, We do have Agatha Christie's great-grandson involved in this as a producer, and so there's sort of the hand-wavy blessing there about about where they're going (laughs) with it. Did he get a cameo? (laughs) Oh, she should. Uh, It'd be a pretty obvious cameo, though, because a pretty small cast and a very contained set. Uh, So 
what's interesting, I think, about this one is the previous two films, very lush, a little bit campy, very cheesy sometimes, really leaning into the comedy and the murder mystery canon. But I think we sort of see a very bit of a turn here. The visuals, mood and atmosphere goes much darker, very much gothic and, yeah, jump scares. For the first time, we really see him (laughs) leaning into this idea of we're going to give you a bit of a jump. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I wanted to just talk about the setting a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. So it was... Well, for reasons of exotic spectacle, I reckon, Mm. I think it's understandable that um, they're doing Poirot abroad. Yes, yes. from, From the UK, that is, because... You know, like Death and the Niles are in Egypt and Murder on the Orient Express crossing Europe from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from Istanbul to or Vienna, I think. Um, and in addition to Egypt and Europe and France, um, most often but not exclusively Paris, in the books uh, and the short stories, Poirot also went to Ireland and Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were stories set in Iraq, Jordan and other locations in the Middle East. Yep. Uh, in fact, Poirot is returning from Iraq and Syria, I think, when he boards the Orient Express in the in the books, uh, there's also a fictional European nation called Herzoslovakia. <laughs> it was very you know common to yeah. do that kind of thing. Yeah. And we, people forget they think like Christie's a, a writer who's writing like in the 30s or whatever, but she was writing right up yeah. into the later part of the 20th century. Yeah, well, the novel this is based on Halloween Party was published in 1969. Ah, exactly. Uh, but it is here transposed back to 1947, yeah. so post-World post War Two, mm-hmm, And mm-hmm. there is at least, and I was quite pleased to find this out, and I do remember it from the David Suquette series, uh, at least one story with Poirot set in his native Belgium. Ah, okay. It's, uh, it's called The Chocolate Box, and it's an account of an early case of his when he was still in Brussels wow. police force. One of, me- one of few, I think. Uh, yes, before he became a, um, uh, a refugee from the German invasion in World War One. And I should remind the listener that Brandon Poirot soldiered in the trenches in World War One, mm-hmm. and he had a, a lost love who was a nurse behind the lines. Yep. So he's also a veteran. Yes. This is pretty much exclusive to the Branner series. Yes. And it does make sense. So, you know, if, if you don't know that in fact, it's it's kind of like a different th- edition. But I yes. don't think it's a bad addition to the um, to the canon. As no, well. no. Um, I also think that it means World War One also still echoes through the minds of the older characters as well as the more recent World War Two. Yes. And, you know, and certainly Poirot's little grey cells haunt him with these horrors as well as the cumulative burden of the constant murders of his stock and trade <laughs> to solve. So we start this movie off with him being retired from the business where every case involves the slow extinguishing of his own soul. Yes, <laughs> as exactly. He says. Yeah. So they've planted these seeds for his coming to grips with his time in the war and kind of these darker elements of the Poirot character in Death on the Nile. Mm. And here is where we really see it come to fruition. So I think, as we mentioned, it's very loosely based on Halloween Party and it's really the first film where they start to really depart from Christie's written work. So I think is the fact that Halloween Party is a lesser known story. They've got the freedom to do that. I mean, if you rolled in and changed Murder in the Orient Express, people would riot. (laughs) But here you maybe have a little bit more freedom, I would think. Uh, and, yes, yeah, so it's set in post-World War II Venice. And a lot of it was filmed on location because it was pretty important to Brenner that it really 
have that feeling of the time and place. Maybe so. he wanted I – mean, maybe this is a clue here. He wanted to go to Egypt. He wanted to go to – Yeah, well, <laughs> I, there's worse reasons. There's worse there's reasons. There's worse reasons, yeah. And for me, I mean, Venice will always be the, the sort of setting of the most horrific film I've ever seen, which is Don't Look Now, <laughs> which continues to haunt me. Ah, yes. Um, and – so I think this is a really great setting and I'm glad that they moved it from the original setting of Halloween Party, which was London. For me, it's Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. <laughs> yeah, go on. Um, should we listen to a little bit yeah. from the score? Uh-huh. So we can hear a little bit from Kuana Dottir's score. So this one is called Haunt and it is from the latest Poirot, A Haunting in Venice. Triple R. Oh, that yeah. was very spooky. Yeah, moody by the canal. Yeah, setting the scene there was Hilda Quanadotia, gosh, uh, and that was Haunt from the soundtrack score to A Haunting in Venice, the latest Poirot film from Kenneth Branagh, the third in the film franchise. And as you can probably tell from that piece of music this one is a definite mood shift we are gothic horror we are shadows everything is darker including the trauma people are experiencing the tone the colors the atmosphere and all of that coming together is i think really what elevates this so so yeah the theme of this one is post-traumatic stress and past trauma When introduced to Poirot, he's living as a hermit in Venice. He's resigned. He's retired, (laughs) trying to. (laughs) A a hermit. A hermit who goes out every day to get his special little chocolate treats. Yep. And some (laughs) uneven eggs, unfortunately. A bit of a throwback to his egg habit. But... So he's just trying to live his life and not be bothered and not be an infamous detective and he's living a very solitary, quiet, in quotation marks, life. Uh, He has quit the detective game, or so he says, and is pretty much in hiding, even though people are still lining up for his help and in need of his expertise to solve the crimes in their lives. So he's kind of still reeling from the events of Death on the Nile. He has no interest in getting involved in any new dramas, no cases, no murders, now or in the future. He just wants to tend to marrows. He just wants the quiet life of a regular man, but he is not a regular man. He's Hercule Poirot. And so a visit from a long-lost friend, the author Ariadna Oliver, played by the delightful Tina Fey, uh, infusing some energy into this. Playing Agatha Christie, essentially. Exactly. Agatha did write Ariadne in her own image. Uh, Ends up with Poirot agreeing to attend a party on the night of Halloween at a decaying palazzo. And, of course, it's not just a party. It's followed by an exclusive late-night seance with a renowned medium. And Poirot is there to debunk uh, because he's a sceptic and, you know, cannot possibly believe that she is for real. So he's there to help expose her as a fraud. And the author wants to write a book about that. Exactly, as any good author would, because what a great story. Mm. So to top it off, um, the palazzo is allegedly haunted, of course, by the souls of numerous children, of course, orphans no less, (laughs) just to add, you know, extra flame to that fire. So in addition, there was also a young woman who fell tragically to her death from one of the upper floors of the palazzo the year before. And that's been chalked up, of course, to this haunting, these child ghosts that have taken their revenge. So all of this is at play. This is the situation we're in. Halloween, seance, ghosts of children, ghosts of women who died previous year. 
And so things don't really go to plan. Ghosts do rattle, visions are seen, bodies drop, and an unexpected storm rolls in. And Poirot is stuck there with a haphazard cast of characters slash suspects. Um, and he must reluctantly get back into the detective game to figure out exactly what is going on and who killed who and why in our classic whodunit scenario. So that's kind of the lay of the land. As we mentioned before, Venice is really the additional character in this one and the building and environment itself, which is very much contained. So this is very much it's not a locked room mystery per se, Actually, there is a there bit is of a locked room word. mystery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There you go. you got something for everyone. But we're all contained. We're stuck here together. It's the course of one evening. Rain is lashing. House is crumbling around us. And, yeah, what are we going to do next? So I should explain that the uh, production design for the Palazzo, it's, it's mm. basically a, a multi-storey building, red, yep. you know, red brick, that sort of thing, yep. um, in the – Bordered by the canals of Venice, mm-hmm. so even though it's in the in the actual city, it's 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 cut off by yes. the storm. You know, yeah. nobody yeah. can get to it. I find that a little bit convenient, but then you know it's either that or set it out on another island somewhere else. Yeah, you know. yeah. We um, want these characters isolated. We want them fighting. We want them suspicious of each other. And what better way to do it? Of course, they built this at Pinewood. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and John Paul Kelly was the. Absolutely spot-on production designer. It's, mm. it's a it's a, a richly de- decadent and decaying set. Obviously, a building that's had many lives in its long time, many uses. Yep. Uh, and as we were saying, it was an orphanage at one stage. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. a curse associated with that. Yep. As uh, there always is, because orphans are apparently the most vengeful, according to yeah. horror and ghost stories and yeah. gothic literature it, it could all you know i mean the only thing that would i wouldn't be surprised if there was like an etruscan graveyard there as well so <laughs> yeah i know stage. it's built on top of some something else <laughs> so it's like stephen king novel the multi-layers of horror exactly to exactly emerge in the place and you know we talk about this like it was just an average pyro murder mystery but this adds a, a completely extra dimension i think it does so it's definitely pulling some of the levers of the supernatural and digging into that a bit more and the pace for that reason i think is a bit different to previous films it's not sprawling and lavish like the other two like you said rob it feels dank it feels moldy everything looks decayed i can smell the wet stones and moldy walls of this one mm. and i think it's all meant to add to this feeling of claustrophobia which is sort of, you know, running parallel to some of the psychological trauma that these characters are going through and the isolation they're feeling in their own minds. So not to draw too much of a long bow on that one, but the setting of this being so dark, depressing and sad, no accident. No, 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 there are no accidents. <laughs> no accidents. Poirot. <laughs> He's there to expose them for what they are. Yeah. Oh, speaking of that, the, the whole design there, um, the daughter's amazing bedroom preserved the way Incredible. it was left at her death, of course. It, yeah, yeah. And I think we do get some of our natural markers to help us follow along with the plot. Like there's a little bit of a tour of the house. We get a little bit of backstory. Characters show up out of the blue from, from you know, past history. And, of course, maybe should we run through some of the characters sure, and, yeah. and who's on the scene here? It It is another ensemble film, although I think Orient Express and maybe Lesser So Death on the Nile, we were really – we were looking for star-studded Bill in those cases, whereas I think we've gone here for a bit of a different assembly of actors, which I really liked. And in our kind of motley crew, we've got 
um, like a battle fatigue doctor, a grieving opera singer, superstitious ex-nun, um, bodyguard ex-policeman. So everybody's kind of got their role to play, but I think everyone does a really lovely job, even though not everyone can get all of the time they need. Yeah, well, you never do in a Poirot mystery. Don't get too attached to some of the people. I know. And it, I mean, at the end, just be happy you're still standing if you are indeed still standing. Um, of course, we talked a bit about Branagh as Poirot. Um, he is the centre of the film, but coming up sort of as his partner in this a little bit is Tina Fey's Ariadne, the writer. So she's an old friend of Poirot. She's a crime novelist herself. And Fey is really leaning into a bit of the old world transatlantic vibe here and having a lot of fun with it. And yes, Christy did base this character on herself. This is a character that does exist in the novels. You could throw her character into, say, the talented Mr. Ripley and get no change. (laughs) Yeah. She's also, I think there's an interesting mixture here because she is an American character. Mm -hmm. We also have a bit of a range of characters from different areas. Maybe let's move on to, we've also got Jamie Dornan. He's playing a doctor and now... This doctor, Dr. Ferrier, is he's suffering from kind of his post-traumatic stress. Yeah, he was he was a, a, a medic in World War II. Yeah, and uh, he's been suffering for a long time. He was in Belfast, directed by Branagh, ah. and his son, played by Jude Hill. Um, you've always got to have a precocious little boy there to help point out things and really vibe with Poirot. Jude Hill plays that son, and he was also in Belfast too. Mm. Yeah, boy, he's a he's a talent. Yeah, they they both were great. I do think Jamie Dornan hasn't really he's done a lot, but I think he's often overlooked. I actually think yeah. he's quite good. Uh, rounding out, we also have um, oh yes, Olga. She's the housekeeper. She I don't know why she's there. She really doesn't want to be there. <laughs> uh, we do find out later why she's still there. She's kind of an explanatory. A device as well. Yes, and she's bringing, she's kind of hammering home some of the religious notes and some of the superstition elements yeah. as well to kind of keep that whole it's haunted and cursed plotline moving along. She's played by Camille Cotton. And who else do we have here? We also have Michelle Yeoh. I was going to say, how could we go past her? She plays Joyce, the medium. And she plays a medium who kind of goes around talking with the dead and for a fee. And she brings with her two assistants, played by Ali Khan and uh, Emma Laird. So they kind of follow along with her, help her out, and they are actually half-brother and sister. So this trio kind of travels around. uh, Necroscope is the word I was thinking of for for a medium. Not a necromancer mm. can raise the dead, but a necroscope can talk to them. (laughs) <laughs> so and Yo is is one or yeah. alleges to be one and ah. she rolls up with, you know, mask, vibes, cape, lots of mystery and is there to lead the séance to connect with the daughter of our retired opera singer played by Kelly Riley. Mm. So she's very, you know, still grief-stricken after the death of her daughter, Alicia. She is struggling. She's saddled with this haunted ex-orphanage palazzo filled with ghosts. And she's kind of just desperate to make that connection with her um, dearly beloved past daughter. And she sees um, Joyce's character, Michelle Yeo, as a bridge to the spirits beyond. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and th- thereby hangs the tale. It's it's a, a complex murder mystery in a lot of ways, probably a bit too complex. I was going to say it's Baroque, but we're actually Renaissance sort of Italy. But And I do think there's – I mean, we've got a lot of people here and it did take me a bit of a minute to kind of clock who they were to each other, like yeah. what these relationships were. Um, well, that's what Poirot's there for, to give you the little list. Exactly. And then I just kind <laughs> of gave up because things just kept moving and the vibes were there and I was happy to just roll along with But, it. you know, he's, he's because they've got this extra overlay of his PTSD as yes. well. Uh, the interviews don't go anywhere near as smoothly as no. they usually do. No. And he's not being helped if... We'll leave that there. Yes. Um, But, yes, so throughout the course of this, we have a few surprises in store and mostly it's spent with them kind of moodily walking around this palazzo, suspicious of each other Mm. and, um, yeah, just kind of waiting for morning and trying to figure out what's gone on. And trying to anticipate the next murder. Yes, exactly. I've got to say, who's going to be next? 1947, Venetian police force, not really impressed with you guys. They do actually show one scene of of them trying to get together some kind of, you know, rescue party. But, it, you know, it does the storm not is too bad. It does not. I mean, but Poirot doesn't even count on them. He's, you know, we don't need the police here. He's on the case. <laughs> he never does. <laughs> he never does. Should we listen to another yeah. little piece of music before we dig in a bit more to our thoughts? Mm-hmm. Let's listen to another piece from the score because it is really great at setting the mood. This one is called Money in the Mattress, again by its Goana Dottia, who does the score for... A haunting in Venice. Triple R. That was Money in the Mattress by Hilda Guanadotia from the score to A Haunting in Venice, which we are talking about today on Zero G. I am Megan McHugh. Rob Jan. So what are your thoughts, Rob? I mean, we all know I'm a big murder mystery tragic, so going into this, I'm already very accepting of any minor errors it may make and very forgiving. So I'm keen to hear what your thoughts are. I thought it was a a cheeky take (laughs) on Halloween party Mm -hmm, because I had mm -hmm. a read of that and I'm thinking, well, this is very far. I mean, look, let's not set it in England. Venice is much better setting. Already far and away an improvement. (laughs) On on Brenner's Cook's tour of uh, of Agatha Christie's works. Um, I I love the setting, even though we're sort of isolated in there. Uh, and actually wait till the the end of the story should give us a nice big drone shot of, of Venice. Yes. Oh, I now, now I understand where we are. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm placed, yeah. I would have liked to have had that a little bit earlier on. Yeah. <laughs> um, as, as mysteries go, I found it kind of absurd. Yes. But that's all right. I, I allowed for that because of the, the strong could-be-supernatural element in there, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, all right, this makes sense. I, I really enjoyed Branner having a uh, – revisiting some of the horror tropes. Yeah. Because I really liked his Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm. And I enjoyed Poirot – Branner as Poirot, once again, he's, he's a delight. He's not – Yeah. He's not David Suquette's mm. Poirot. Yeah. He's, he's his own man. He's got his own moustaches. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which they actually have a tragic backstory too. I know. I mean, yeah, nothing's ever quite what it seems, right? Yeah. Uh, and I love the, the flashing in, interplay between the dialogue and the banter between him and Tina Fey's character. Yes. Really a good. A highlight. Really yep. good. You have to listen to it 
at times, and you know that, and you can see this little smile in in Tina Fey's face. You know, you know she's having a lend at times. Yeah, I think she's a really great addition to the to bring some energy to it because it could be quite a not flat is the wrong term, but a very subdued film in some ways. Yeah, because yeah. there are definitely portions that maybe some viewers would find slower. Um, for me, I think I enjoyed it. I do think, though, that for the murder mystery fan in me, it didn't appeal so much to that because I do think the plot and story, it wasn't really anything whiz-bang, but it was kind of a, appealing to the film person in me because yeah. I think the cinematography and the setting and just the mood and atmosphere of it, it's so unsettling. It's really using the Venice setting to its maximum degree. There's some beautiful shots both internal of the palazzo and externally of the environment around. And just, yeah, like birds flapping through empty squares, ominous alleyways, all of that I think came together in a way that I really appreciated the film element of it. But I do think, I mean, and this is the thing, it's really interesting because Michael Green has written this as you said, it's loosely, tangentially related to Halloween Party, Christie's book. And so this is a mystery all out of his own mind, out of, of his making, which I think is is fine. Like, this is something they're doing. Like, I have a book that's a collection of short stories with Miss Marple as the character, and they're all in, the, in honour of Agatha Christie's work, ah. done by different established writers. So this is – and, you know, I know there's Poirot books that have been – published by other authors so I'm not against that by any means and I'm not saying that I didn't like it because it wasn't close to the source material I just think that the thing that stood out to me was the vibe and the way it was made Mm. it as Mm. a film plot and characters sufficient yeah yeah enough (laughs) enough exactly exactly the Actually, uh, Poirot and Miss Marple never met in the books. So, mm. you know, Christy never crossed them over. She mm. thought it was a silly idea. Uh, but they did actually meet on screen sort of in The Alphabet Murders in 1966. Oh. They're like, you know, they exchange glances. Oh, so. yeah, that annoying look. Yeah, yeah. Um. She just, she just, Christy just said, Poirot wouldn't tolerate Miss Marple interfering with anything that he was involved oh, with. Oh, goodness, no. Just, not not no. this small-town Jessica Fletcher type. But it would have been nice to see her try. <laughs> <laughs> a meeting of the minds. Yeah. I did figure out what was going on, but I think the film wants you to figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my suspicions were roused relatively early, but I was enjoying it so much I, I put the brakes on my speculation. yes. Um, and yeah. this is a film that encourages you to do that, just to yeah. enjoy it as you yes, go along. Yes, agree. Yeah. Which is a nice change, I think. It's not – sometimes when films don't do everything perfectly, it's also fine. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm often along for the ride with a Brenner film. Yeah. You know, there's some I don't like as as much as others. And, and this one I was definitely feeling friendly towards because I wanted to see more of Poirot after, you know, Niall and um, – yeah. And uh, Orient Express, and, and it was it was fun, and because it was so unexpected, yes. I must admit I I had this hadn't I hadn't clocked this at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think because we both didn't realize that it was right on our doorstep. Mm. I definitely went in not knowing what to expect, but in a good way. And I do find these to be of a reliable quality, and I hope they keep making them. Mm. Um, I'd like to see, keep seeing these. I'm not sure which, where they would go next. There's one actually that's set sort of on an aeroplane called Death in the Clouds. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, 
My favorite Christie is And Then There Were None. Yeah. I would love to see that done well. Uh, but, I mean, yeah. So I think that I think that there's plenty of room to take this wherever they want, to go to one that is a well-known story or to do something like what they've done here. Doctor Who did it twice, actually. I think they, they did an Agatha Christie one. Yeah. And they also did one in space. So. Of course, of course. <laughs> I think, I mean, and I think there's hopeful plans to do more. It's not as easy to find details around plans and the experience of this film because of the strike, which, you know, support that. So it'll be interesting to see exactly whether there'll be more here. There was no tidbits dropped about any kind of sequel to this. So, yeah, like I said, keen to see more, very enjoyable, and I think definitely kind of worth the cinema because of the film, um, mm. kind of the cinematography and the way it was made. So And the production design. Yeah, and that time and place feeling. But, again, it would also be fine to watch on streaming once it makes it there too, if you're a fan. Yeah. And so in a zero-G rating of yeah, no, maybe I give it a we. Me too. Hmm. We. Uh, Yes, that was A Haunting in Venice. It is out in cinemas now, the third film in the Poirot-Branagh franchise. Hmm. Well, music? Yeah. Should we take a little listen to – we can play something that's Branagh-focused or we can hear a little something from Orient Express score. Um, Your choice. Let's go with the Orient Express suite, just because that's a bit of a classic. This one's from the first Murder on the Orient Express film directed by Branagh, and it is by Patrick Doyle. And it's not from the same uh, movie, but we have a locomotive. We do. (laughs) (laughs) Melbourne's own Triple R. That was Orient Express Suite by Patrick Doyle, and that was from Murder on the Orient Express, the first Branagh film in the Poirot series. And we covered that because we just talked about A Haunting in Venice, which got two thumbs up from both of us. Mm, mm, mm. I tweaked my moustache on both ends, <laughs> my moustaches. All right, Doctor Who, the trailer has dropped for the first or, well, basically the free 60th anniversary specials coming out mm-hmm. this year. Um, David Tennant <laughs> reprising his role as the Doctor. Yep. He was number 10. Now he's number 14. <laughs> Bridging the gap between Jodie Whittaker's 13th Doctor and the 15th Doctor, the Rwandan Scottish actor Shuti Gatwa. Mm-hmm. Wow. Also returning is companion Donna Noble, played again by Catherine Tate. Nice. Well, the trouble with that is that the 10th Doctor erased her memory to prevent her from dying. Mm. So if she ever remembers her travels with the Doctor, well, that's it. So obviously they're going to work through that somehow. Uh, those are the stakes going into them reuniting, and Donna is already troubled by feelings of not remembering something really important. Mm. Oof. So, you know, there's a, there are the three episodes, The Star, Wild Blue, and The Giggle. The Giggle. <laughs> the giggle. That's a great title. Uh, Loads of characters in there. There's a meep, which is a creature with white fur, big brown eyes and big ears. Oof. You know, uh, as, as uh, Donna says, a bloody Martian in the shed. The merch sellers are licking their chops. Yeah, with <laughs> Megan Margolis doing the voice for the Oh, meep. cool. And there's a line that Donna has, which is classic Donna. Um, she says, there's something so bad the TARDIS ran away. And the doctor says, yes. And then she says, then we go and kick its ass. <laughs> <laughs> we get to see Unit Headquarters, which is now a skyscraper. Mm-hmm. And, for, you know, another covert sort of intelligence operation with Unit written in big letters on the <laughs> side. It's a little bit like Stark Tower, you know. Yeah. And it's scientific director Kate Lethbridge-Stewart once again 
played by uh, Gemma Redgrave. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so Neil Patrick Harris is in this one, <gasps> pl- playing a, a baddie called the Celestial Toymaker, mm-hmm. who we saw last in Doctor Who in 1966. <laughs> the Toymaker, not, not Neil, Neil Patrick, Patrick Harris. <laughs> Harris, and... Um, so he's uh, reprising, he's doing that role in a nice. modern context. Um, and it literally was a, a toy maker sort of thing. A bit like Batman, actually, I suppose, when you think about it. Uh, and you've got um, Jacqueline King and Carl Collins popping up again as Sylvia Noble, Donna's mum, Donna's feisty mum, mm-hmm. who always likes to slug the doctor. So, <laughs> And Sean Temple, uh, who was in um, uh, the last uh, end of time, 10th, Dr. David Tennant's story. And Bernard Cribbins, who has died in the meantime, also has a role in this. Um, uh, You know, uh, footage that they completed before he passed away. Uh, There's a new show. It's Russell T. Davies being the showrunner. Okay. He was showrunner for the 9th and 10th Doctors, so now he's back. And they're once again doing this with the Bad Wolf Production Company. Yeah. So that's Cardiff based as well and it just seems to me that this is coming in and uh, passing the torch from from jody's doctor via these the reliable hands of the Mm. tenth doctor and then to shooty um and i'm up for it because i i really love the david Tennant, yeah um you know catherine tate sort of the energy and the energy and the vibe and everything murray gold is now taking over from from uh, segan akinola so Gold was, of course, the yep. long-running. Um, it's always long-running in the Doctor. They do nothing but running. Um, he was in that, that, that sort of era and yep. then back again. And, you know, they, they presage this with a comic relief sketch, so it's all is good. <laughs> I, and I think this is a, an interesting development and, and a, a mixture of bold and not so bold. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's both safe and, and not Mm, yeah. Look, I loved Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. Um, yep. I, I I didn't like all the stories necessarily, but I did not like them all. Yeah. You know, there was some really solid storytelling in that. And I just I just liked that sort of let's be having you yep. attitude that she yeah. had. She had great companions. Yeah, um, agreed. Yeah, and I think, oh, there's a, there's a new companion who will be um, sort of coming through this as well because that's one of the ways they do it. They... They don't always just chop off companions yeah. and doctors and showrunners at the same time, but sometimes they interlock them. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's idea. Clever. It helps you ease into it. Yeah. So the trailer's on now. It looks very exciting. Obviously, we're all concerned about poor Donna, but they'll work. I know they'll work it out. Yeah. Uh, at least. Yeah, nothing bad ever happens in Doctor Who, right? Oh, it does. No, I know. So like me, my experiences have been like, oh my god. Yeah, you know, you'll laugh, you'll cry. Exactly, it's <laughs> much more devastating than what it leads you to believe with its jaunty theme music. Yeah, it was. It's changed <laughs> it's a bit of a. It's changed a lot. It's gone dark, yeah. Well, you know, it always has been in lots of ways. There's a Peter Davison episode where everybody gets killed. I think it's you know. it's the tone and the content. Mm. Is is gone dark if you know what yeah. I mean. So yeah, yeah well that's all right. As yeah, as for sure. They, they do circle around through it. Although yeah. they haven't done a musical episode yet, so mm. I wish they would. <laughs> I know that'll be seen like oh no, don't do that for Doctor Who. But everybody else can do it. I don't see why. Exactly. Uh, all right. Now 
I have been watching uh, some kaiju content on Netflix. Mm-hmm. They have a lot, actually. Uh, an old fave. Good mm. old trusty kaiju content. I've mentioned Kong, the Skull Island, um, which is kind of a prequel. To, no, sorry, it's a sequel to that mm. movie, you know, the uh, the one with um, Samuel Jackson and uh, Brie Larson and Tom Hiddleston, mm-hmm. where they went to Skull Island yes. in the 60s. This one is set some time after that, although I think I'd actually do see a helicopter from mm. the uh, wreckage of a helicopter from that ill-fated mission. Uh, it's a great story. It's it's an animated series. It's spot on, good dialogue, mm. good characters. Uh, excellent animation, actually, and and a story that actually moves me at times. Oh. You know, oh. I feel sad for Kong and, and the whole thing. Yeah, they always get you with that. Yeah, inflected. The the minions in it are good. The baddies are not what they seem. Mm. And, oh, I just loved it. Who's the real monster, et cetera, uh, yes. et cetera. And Gamera Rebirth, which is about the giant space turtle. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. also on Netflix. Um, it's been released. And they also have the Godzilla Singular Point series. Mm-hmm. God, and, and Pacific Rim, the black. That's got oh, a yeah. second season. We talked about that once on Zero Two. And that was the one where the cage were ravaging Australia. Oh, God. They so always pick on us. They do, don't they? And so there's a lot there. I mean, obviously, cage are big at the moment. <laughs> and just to throw you one out of left field, if you haven't seen the movie Colossal yet. Oh, yeah. Check that one out. Yeah. Cut that down. It's not talked about enough, that film. No, it isn't. It's underrated, but it is a cage movie. Yeah. I can tell you that now. We, I think we all sort of been cagey about the cage at the time when we reviewed it, but... It's a good it's film. It's very solid, that one. Is that Anne Hathaway? It's Anne Hathaway, yeah. Jason Sudeikis. Mm. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. Mm. What we thought we'd go out with, and I, I, I thought, I need another, I need a Bowie track. It's been a while, uh, a couple of weeks at least. And I thought, well, I want one that's got something to do with Venice. And mm-hmm. I want something that's got to do with drugs because that's involved in the, uh, the story and mm-hmm. the haunting in Venice. And if possible, something to do with um, war PS. PTSD. It was a tall order. Not all that, apparently, uh, because I put those three terms together in the search and it jogged my memory as well with a a title. And um, so we've got, uh, oh, I'd rather be high, Mm -hmm. Venetian mix. (laughs) And it came out in, uh, it was recorded in 2011. Mm Mm-hmm. Bowie wrote it, uh, you know, Visconti produced it. And eighth song on the next day, uh, penultimate studio album of Mr Bowie. Uh, and it's really about a, a young soldier who's um, trying to get out from under the cloud of his military service and he's like dreaming of Berlin and London and Cairo. Oh, yeah. And really he just wants to be doing anything but mm. fighting a war. So hence the, uh, the rather be high. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that might have echoes through his treatment as well because, yeah. you know, and it could be any war really. It's, yeah. It's, it's sort of like Iraq or Afghanistan, but it could be World yeah. War One or two or anything like that. What is it good for? Mm. Exactly. <laughs> as Xena as once sang, absolutely nothing. Mm. Now, just to remind you that the Radiothon is still echoing on through eternity mm-hmm. until uh, they do the, um, I was like to say, the gift-giving ceremony. <laughs> But, you know, draw the prizes. Yes. So, yes, if you have subscribed to Triple R and or Zero G and haven't paid up yet, mm-hmm. please do. Yeah. 
Yep. You have till the 4th of October, 5 p.m. And if you want to get uh, the skinny on all of the benefits and what it is to be a subscriber, you can head to rrr.org.au. Until next week, Zero G supports the Yes Vote Mm. because the way to the future is to recognise the past in the present. Joe Brunetti coming up next with Astral Glamour. Take it away, Mr Bowie. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.